Released in 1986, Manhunter, Michael Mann's third film, brought author Thomas Harris's best-selling crime thriller, Red Dragon, vividly to life on the big screen. It's a stylish, moody, tense, and terrifying picture that unites neon noir aesthetics, horror, and suspense, and arguably is the first major progenitor of contemporary serial killer and forensic film genres. Also importantly, it introduced to many the brilliant and depraved fictitious serial killer Hannibal Lecter. At first misunderstood upon its release, this movie has since been rightfully reappraised and has acquired the cult status that it deserves. And we break it all down next on Midnight Flicks. Midnight Flicks, a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late night purgatory. I'm your host, Adam Walker, and joining me on this cinematic expedition is Pat Mitchell. How you doing, Pat? I'm great. I uh, can't be more fucking stoked to be discussing this movie. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, and we'll see if this holds true. This might be the best movie we uh, talk about. Just... Because, you know, a lot of the movies we're going to talk about, um, uh, how we've addressed in these earlier episodes, have have flaws that make them, uh, you know, we, we like them in spite of their flaws. Right. This is like unfuckwithable, um, but totally in the realm of uh, cult status, midnight movie stuff so you know i i really do think it's probably the best movie we will uh objectively the best movie we might ever do on here for sure that's something that i definitely considered while i was watching it and, and when i was going back to thinking about the whole premise of this show is that we've discussed in previous episodes up to this point where we talk about movies having these charming flaws to them that make them cultish and put them in that realm of what we, what we describe as midnight flicks. But yeah, in a lot of ways, this movie is pretty unfuckwithable. Um, I think at first when it was released, some critics picked it apart for things that I think since then have uh, 
actually been reassessed as adding to the greatness of the movie. So in, in, in retrospect, as I said, in the, uh, in the monologue, it's been reappraised. So hundred percent agree with you on that. That was definitely a thought that I had. So it's, it, you know, and I, w- as I was rewatching it, I, I found myself like, like almost enthralled as if I was watching it for the first time all over again. Mm-hmm. It's replay value is through the goddamn roof. Yeah. It's just so good. Um, I watched it sandwich between um, a, a strange couple of movies. Um, so speaking of, did, what did you watch this weekend? So in the past week, since we talked last time, there's a couple good movies that I watched. And they were also ones that had been on my list. I, like many people that maybe listen to this program, maybe yourself included. I have an IMDB watch list that I slowly make my way, way, way through. And uh, it's actually expanded pretty dramatically since I've been volunteering at Scarecrow. Yeah, I can imagine. So yeah. it's basically every, every shift that I have there, I'm just adding new things to it. So it basically will be forever. I will never, ever complete this watch list. No, it's impossible. So, and before I was just kind of cherry picking, I was going through it and I was being kind of biased when I was going through it and I would go through the list and be like, Oh, that that's what I want to watch now. And so there was a lot of films that were way down on the list when I had started it, that I had, I was just not getting to that. I was kind of putting off every time I went to pick a new movie. So finally I just dedicated myself to the, go into the very beginning of the list and work on my way up. So I made sure that one of the early ones I watched in the past week, which I'll get to because importantly, it relates to this film that we're watching and discuss, or we watched and discussed this time before I get to that one. The other movie that I watched was a movie called the driver, which is a Walter Hill movie. You know, never even heard of it, man. I tell you what. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. So Walter Hill famously directed the warriors and a mm-hmm. number of other films. There's actually, I think a few of his films that I put in the queue for us to discuss aside, oh, nice. from, aside Good. from, aside from the warriors, uh, streets of fire being one of them, but the driver was a movie released in the seventies and essentially set the template for the movie drive the ryan gosling movie oh yeah yeah so so the entire premise of the movie they kind of re-adapted and rebooted for drive because it's about it yeah it's about a getaway car driver and he's very taciturn the dialogue in the movie is very um non-existent so and it's it's a it's a cat and mouse kind of uh, chase movie between the driver and this detective, this uh, tenuous detective that's in pursuit of him. And the detective is played by uh, um, uh, Bruce Dern. Bruce Dern. Uh, yeah. Bruce Dern does a fantastic job. He just plays this just prick. <laughs> this just this this obsessed prick 
that will do anything that he has to to catch this guy. Which Bruce Stern is good for. If anything, he's good for. It's playing just a great prick. Right. He does fantastic. And also, Isabel and Johnny's in it. And I love her as an actress. I came around to her really strong after I saw the movie Possession, which she's in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the main actress in Possession. But this was her first US film. And incidentally, she had said that that being her first us film ruined her career for various reasons hmm. so but yeah, so possession with sam neil sam neil yeah yeah so but she wanted to work with walter hill so she signed on to the project and apparently it kind of typecast her i guess for u.s roles future u.s roles so she she doesn't have anything really good to say about what it did for her but <laughs> aside from that great cast everybody rules in it um it's super fun movie to watch a lot of really great car chase scenes a lot of good smash em up kind of demolition derby moments yeah that sounds right up my alley a lot of really cool car wrecks so <laughs> sign me up that is a good segue into the other movie that i watched which i said relates to this movie that we're talking about tonight. And that's to live and die in LA. Also never seen. That is a William Friedkin movie. Exorcist. Exorcist, French connection, cruising, et cetera, et cetera. And that stars our star of tonight's movie that we're talking about. William Peterson. Oh, good. Okay. I, I was like, why is it William Peterson in anything I've ever seen before? I thought that every time I think this, every time I see this, every time I see Manhunter, I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. And I'm sure we'll get into more about William Peterson's arc as an actor when we get into the movie, but to the live and die in LA was his first major film that he signed on to and was incidentally the role he played was the reason why he got cast in Manhunter. Oh, interesting. Because we will find out that there was a lot of these uh, interconnections in the Chicago theater scene and and movie scene uh, between uh, Friedkin and Michael Mann and William Peterson. They're all buddies, basically. They all knew each other from Chicago. And Michael Mann wanted William Peterson to play the lead role in Manhunter because of his role into live and die in LA and the character that he plays in that movie, very similar to the Bruce Dern character in in drive where he just plays this very singularly minded, obsessed detective that will do whatever it takes to get his man and to live and die in LA. Incidentally, that guy is Willem Dafoe who plays a fantastic villain. I love him in villainous roles. Yeah. He's always so cool. And usually like weird. Yeah. So yeah. he has some weird spin on a villain. And total freak. Total freak, usually. <laughs> exactly. So he's like a freak in this movie. And yeah, it's really cool. And again, it has one of the most bonkers car chases I've ever seen in a movie. It's just this car chase that goes on forever. <laughs> and they're just they're just fucking up so much shit left and right. While they're while they're engaged in this car car scene, so anyway, so those are the two I saw that were standout for me, and I feel like really in terms of their DNA and what they did, uh, 
has a strong imprint on tonight's movie. So it was. Oh yeah. That, that formula of the, uh, the obsessed careerist, um, chasing, uh, chasing down somebody in a cat and mouse, uh, format, um, is literally the Michael Mann blueprint. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's, heat obviously <laughs> has the same premise. Um, mm-hmm. Main Hunter, he, that's like his his whole his whole collateral. It's like mm-hmm. the, his blueprint is is that exactly. But uh, if you perfect something um, like that, I don't give a shit if you just keep printing the same uh, idea just in different formats. I, I love Michael Mann stuff. Yeah, it's a great formula, and it also it's a good formula to portray this whole concept of a, a hero or an antagonist having to basically become the protagonist to, to catch, catch him in, in pursuit him or her. So it's that cool dynamic of you have to become the monster that you're in search of to capture the monster. So, Absolutely. So again, all, all themes that relate to tonight's movie. Yeah, you did. You did uh, some extracurricular homework. <laughs> I did. And, and, and honestly, it really, it was almost coincidental. I wasn't necessarily trying to find movies that I felt specifically related to Manhunter in terms of their aesthetic and, and the narrative whatsoever. It was just, those were two movies that I'd been wanting to see for a long time. And it just happened to work out that I watched them right before we talked about this. So anyways, so that was what I did. How about you, my friend? Oh, well, um, I watched Jerry Maguire. (laughs) I watched Jerry Maguire (laughs) and, uh, that movie fucking sucks. Like I was telling my wife, I was like, this movie sucks. I like, I don't, I remember, I think seeing it as a kid, I remember the, all the stupid lines from it um, and the general premise, but I never watched it. And we're both fans of the podcast, uh, the rewatchables and they have a Jerry Maguire episode. So I've just been going through. And if it's a movie I haven't seen on, on their podcast, I just go back and watch it. I can't wait to listen to that podcast because I could not stand this movie. I like, I hated it. I fast forwarded through all the Renee Zellweger crap because all, because Cuba Gooding Jr. does such a fantastic job, but you have to sit through 10 to 15 minutes at a time of the, the worst ham fisted romantic uh, crap. But I fast forwarded through all of through. I got to a point where I just Renee Zellweger would come on the screen and I would just fast forward until Cuba Gooding Jr. showed up. And then I would watch all those parts. Um, so I watched, uh, yeah, I watched Jerry Maguire. That movie uh, fucking blows. But I wanted to bring up real quick before we segue in Sylvester Stallone. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, my my main man and uh, yours as well. He he wrote a graphic novel concept called the expendables go to hell have you seen this he wrote the whole fucking thing he pitched it 
with a $10,000 goal on Indiegogo, it made $50,000. So they're already like in the works of making it. The Expendables, I guess, die on some secret mission and are all sent to hell. (laughs) This is absolutely amazing. It is bonkers. And while in hell, all I know, I don't know much, but the cover of this thing is Sylvester Stallone punching out Hitler with (laughs) Stalin, Saddam Hussein, and Osama bin Laden like in the background, like, oh no, I made man. (laughs) I love it. So it made so much money that there's a little, a little buzz about this maybe being a movie, which this this might be the first modern movie that we just have to go see in theaters and then do an immediate episode on. I'm I'm 100% on board with that. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I love the first Expendables. I admittedly haven't seen any of the sequels. That first one though was so sick. I It's it's amazing. It's so good. The the rest I can't speak for as well, although um which one is Stone Cold Steve Austin in? Is he in the first one or is he, is that a sequel? They all blend, they all blur together to me. I don't believe he's in the first one. I don't remember him in that one. Okay. So he's in two. I, I re- vividly remember him being in one and I didn't think him being in a uh, expendable, I should say, but not it not being the first one, but me liking the first one. And then me liking that he was in another one, but then it went off the rails after, after that. Yeah. I, from what I know, and they they degrade in quality with each successive. It really should have just sequel. been the one. Um, although, sign me up for the Expendables. Go to hell. <laughs> totally, <laughs> through and through. That's amazing. You know, and I we talked about Salone last time, of course, because of cliffhanger. But the more and more I hear about thing, little things like this, little things that he does behind the scenes terms of like throwing money at different projects or putting up his own money to make certain things happen it just endears me more and more to the man because he's really dedicated to making the movies that he wants absolutely if if this show had a mount rushmore we already have carved out a space for harry dean stanton and dick miller but stallone would be on that bad boy It'd be have Stallone, Harry Dean Stanton, Dick Miller, and a uh, a fourth spot uh, as yet to be announced. But um, tentatively, would you say Tom Atkins, or is he is he too minor of a player? This he, point, I, you know, I think Dick Miller uh, fills the shoes that he's that he would fill on on the monument. Yeah, although I love to, we could we could put him on there pending uh, a better choice yeah we'll have but, to come back to that discussion yes speaking of uh going to hell let's uh let's uh, go to hell here <laughs> <laughs> down the wormhole of manhunter tudor entered through kitchen sliding door used a glass cutter anchor to a suction cup his entry was skillful all the prints are smooth gloves Yeah. So we're going to give you a synopsis here. Former FBI profiler Will Graham returns to service to pursue a deranged serial killer named the Tooth Fairy by the media. 
Um, that's pretty much the basic basic synopsis of it. And like we were saying, kind of discussing the movies that I had watched uh, within the uh, within the movie, he kind of has to confront uh, the demons of his past, and through that, he meets with Hannibal Lecter, who he was a previous victim to while he was in pursuit of, of capturing Hannibal Lecter. So I guess that would be, that's, a, that's about as good of a synopsis as we're going to get with that one. So anything else you'd want to add? No, it, it's very, um, the, the, the best part about this movie is the simplicity of it. Uh, that's, that's what it is. The, uh, expert profiler, who was basically forced into retirement and is asked to come back for one more case. Exactly. And, and he does it. And uh, we watch him delve back into the insanity that drove him uh, into retirement to begin with. Yeah. And as I said, also, it's based off of Thomas Harris's book, Red Dragon, which was the first of a trilogy of books later dubbed as the Hannibal trilogy. Um, I have read all three of these books. Thomas Harris is one of my favorite authors of all time. Nice. Red, Red Dragon was the first that I had read of all of them. I believe I, I had seen Manhunter. No, no, I actually, I had read the book before I'd watched Manhunter. Mm, okay. So, so it was one of those occasions where I knew exactly how this story went before I actually saw any sort of cinematic adaptations of it. Uh, <clears throat> Silence of the Lambs is a different story because I saw that pretty young. I, 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 re I read that book after I'd read Red Dragon because I'd been pretty sucked in by Thomas Harris's writing. So I was just like, I'm going all, all in for this. And I read all, all three of those books. How close does Michael Mann keep Manhunter to uh, the Red Dragon, the book? It's fairly close. Obviously, there has to be a lot of con condensing of the story to make it happen. Uh, he stays pretty true to what I feel. He represents both Will Graham and Dollar Hyde fairly well. There's definitely a lot more of a backstory to Dollar Hyde that doesn't really get discussed in Manhunter. So as far as the conditions that created him to be the serial killer, the monster that he became. But the movie kind of goes into that a bit where it talks about how, you know, he he he's a man with a monster on his back. Essentially, he's a man that you know, he was made into what he was. There's, you know, there was some sort of trauma in his past. So that would be the big difference that, that, that is missing is just lacking that backstory to developing dollar hide. So it makes sense. Oh, the screen adaptations always lose, lose the, those kinds of the things that make books so much, so much better. All the, all the details that you just can't cram into a movie. So it makes sense.
without further ado then since we got that intro knocked out of the park we're gonna move into our, uh, our good bad and the questionable section of the show where we give our analysis of the guts of this movie so to start off we're gonna talk about the good what did we like about this movie you want to you want to head it off there Pat? oh boy much like yourself i'm sure yours is uh the good list is just out of control um i i i'll start with my i guess my very favorites because i've just got a ton um the the michael mann uh neo-noir aesthetic the color palette choices the um the like soft blues and the neon greens and the it's just is just incredible from a filmmaking perspective and i don't want to just gush like film nerd talk but the there's framing going on that's just like incredible like there he's just making so many um specific choices uh that are incredible specifically one of my favorite things that he does in the movie um, and I'm sure you noticed this, but I had to look up what the hell was going on because I couldn't figure it out. The Dollar Hyde Graham shootout at the end, he slowed down and sped up the frame rates on it um, and then edited it all together. So it's got like this really dysfunctional, like disjointed feel to it. It's like, speeds up and then like he's shooting back and it, it, the frame rate is slowed down. Um, and then, and then jerks you back, uh, by, by speeding it back up. It, it's so masterful. I, I love that scene and I didn't understand what he did, but I guess he just, he slowed down and, and sped up the frame rate. Um, so it pretty much all the Michael Mann decision-making from a filmmaking aspect. Um, I absolutely, loved uh tom noonan's performance i think we both have talked about tom noonan before um but tom noonan was absolutely fantastic uh he did such a good job um and i will also add i'm trying not to read all of these because <laughs> i know we're going to do a lot of overlapping um this is just this is just a funny little thing. Did you did you catch the Chris Elliott sighting? Hundred <laughs> percent. And yes, I was going to bring that up later into the into the show here. How but, weird! He's in it for like seven seconds. It's so strange. Yeah. So he he plays one of the FBI analysts when they have like the powwow. They have like mm-hmm. the meeting of the minds. Yeah. He just and, has like an opinion real quick. Well, and it's funny because he's in what I would regard as a very um, exception, exceptional. When I say exceptional, like an, an exception to the rule, an exceptional role to what I associate with Chris Elliott. I know. It, <laughs> and I don't know what it, what it is, but this was the first, um, this was the first time I even uh, noticed he was in it. I didn't notice it in, in all my previous viewings of this. I, I never even noticed him until this, this last time I saw it. Yeah, I knew I had known from previous viewings that he was in the movie. And again, he plays a, you know, a straight laced 
you know, individual in this. Whereas historically, Chris Elliott has played these wacky, harebrained, kind of dundering characters. In my mind, forever, I will always associate Chris Elliott with the show Get a Life. Because (laughs) I, I, I watched that show pretty fanatically when I was a kid. I loved that show. And, you know, he just plays an insane idiot (laughs) in that and, and, and subsequent film roles that he's been in. Also, it's kind of the same. I feel like he got kind of typecast in a lot of ways. I definitely did. Yeah. And I've only watched one episode of Schitt's Creek because we weren't feeling it. I, I, I've heard from other people that we need to go back and kind of reevaluate it. But in that show, as far as I know, he plays a fucking idiot. So <laughs> back on brand, back Good. on brand. He's also in groundhog day, you know, so to see him in a role where he plays a per, a professional, it was a little, it's a little odd. It's, you know, it's, it's jarring. It it's was a little jarring. I, I like almost, uh, couldn't follow the scene. It has got like a million miles, miles an hour of important information. And I was like, furiously looking like, was that looking up? Like, was that Chris Elliott? What the hell is going on? Like it threw me off. Uh, yeah. There's Chris I, Elliott in a good way. Like I just appreciate the Chris Elliott sighting. Absolutely. The Chris Elliott cameo still is, is a okay in my book. So I did For notice sure. that as well. Um, yeah. Any others? Um, one that I I'm trying to think of ones that you may not have on there on yours and I this one I know you'll agree with but you may may have not written it down I just really appreciate um, Graham's like Will Graham's chilling at home look like lots of pastels and like unbuttoned t-shirts and like the shortest shorts on the planet just like making what the hell was he making on the beach? Was that a crab trap? I didn't, I wasn't understanding what he was I believe, doing there. I believe it was a turtle trap. Turtle trap. Okay. So yes. And, and he discusses with his son that the, the cage there, the, 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 the chicken wire there is to protect the turtles from crabs and, and also dogs. Oh, that's what it was. That, okay. That was, that was the whole purpose of it. Well, his turtle trap outfit God damn. Uh, Will Graham is, is the, the most fuckable person in this movie uh, by far. <laughs> Just, I love the pastels and the, and the short shorts. He like his, his chilling at home look is something to be like, it's aspirational. Um, but yeah, what, what we could go on and on about a million of these things, which, which direction you want to take this in terms of, of the good. I know you have a million things. Yeah, well, I would I would, I would just want to deep dive a little more into things that you brought up and first and foremost the the color choices in this are integral to understanding the emotion that that man was trying to convey within each sequence and the the deep blues that are associated with scenes that involve romance or passion or intimacy or some sort of caring and compassion that that's one that's you know used throughout the movie the greens that are used to convey trust and calmness 
you see those throughout the wardrobes and some of the actors and also being projected onto, you know, different buildings and things like that. And then the reds, of course, that are brought in to, to develop a sort of sense of menace, menace or foreboding. One really important scene where there's this interesting juxtaposition of greens, deep greens and reds that I love is towards the end of the movie when Dollar Hyde, he's blown a fuse over Reba and he feels that there's some funny business going on between her and the coworker and he just like cracks over it. And when he shows up to her apartment and you see the shots from inside her apartment as she's going to the door and it's a very deep green kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's a soothing deep green. And then immediately as she opens the door and Francis is there in the doorway, it's this red that kind of floods into the room and you see the juxtaposition between the green and the red. That to me was so fucking cool, especially again, after you analyze like, you know, Michael Mann's very, very deliberate use of color. So those things in particular, like, yes, I really love a lot. There's actually one particular scene also. I think it's, uh, it's that initial scene where Will and Molly is, is in the bedroom together and you see the, the moonlight on the water and you know how tranquil it looks. And then there's a shot of Molly, like an aerial shot where she kind of rolls over on her back and Will is there. Uh, he's got his head kind of in the crook of her neck or whatever. And you look at her skin tone and it's like this, like almost metallic kind of silvery tone. You know, again, it's just like these very, very deliberate uses of the color is amazing. And, and it's the Michael Mann. Um, that's his. Uh, I mean, that's throughout all of his shit, too. Uh, uh, Collateral has uh, an insane color palette. It's just uh, it's just nuts. Like he does the same thing. um to a lesser degree, but he definitely has, uh, it's not as drastic. I think this has his most drastic right. color palettes. And from what I had gathered from like initial reactions to the movie, that was seen as a drawback. A lot of critics thought that because it was so stylized, it made the movie, um, it, it pigeonholed the movie, I suppose, but that was seen as a drawback. And, and it's again, since been reassessed as being like, that's what makes the movie so cool is those dramatic uses of color for, you know, you know, developing some sort of, you know, deeper understanding of what's going on throughout the movie. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. That's, that's, that's crazy that someone would see it as such, but yeah, I mean, it's, that's, we're in full agreement. That's easily one of the best, best things about watching this. It's just so like, it's so encompassing. Like you can't even really um, get to this kind of deeper kind of appreciation until you watch it a couple of times uh, because you're so enthralled by the story that you wouldn't, this, this stuff is kind of in the background, but 
Right. Once you, you watch it five or six times, you're like start appreciating all this other shit so much yeah. more. Yeah, you start picking up on that subtext that the color palette is is delivering within the movie. So that another really good thing about this, and this also relates to why I love Thomas Harris as a writer in general, is the attention to forensics in the movie. And that again kind of set the stage for what would what would develop more or less in the 90s into now is this kind of proliferation of forensic oriented programs and um it was said that this this movie kind of spawned that in a lot of ways with the x-files and then csi and et cetera et cetera et cetera but if you read any thomas harris books his attention to forensic detail is it's amazing it's it's mathematical um you get really engrossed in that aspect of it where he talks about how much goes into figuring out you know um what kind of strategy they need to do to find the 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 person they're in pursuit of but that this movie deals with that of course it's an integral part of the story is the uh you know the the use of forensic study to track down the killers and i i always really love that a lot and it you know it also crops up obviously in silence of the lambs so that's another really cool thing that i like about this movie specifically when they find the note in lector's cell that entire sequence is just is is got all that masterful um forensic stuff and it makes sense and it's not like there's not total leaps in logic like it all kind of ties together um it's not like they they don't solve it too quickly and you're like that they they don't they would never fucking solve it that quickly right it's also not it's not slow and and you're and not obvious like hey i understand what's going on how do these FBI agents not understand what's going on. It's like the perfect pacing in terms of connecting the dots. It, and I feel like that is a, a thing that's underappreciated in movies is, is making something seem believable or, uh, uh, you know, in the Realistic. context of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so that's what this movie does so well is it, it is able to create this believability that, you know, when you watch this movie, you think, wow, this could actually happen in real life. So much so <laughs> when I was watching this movie and when I read, read the book, I was thinking, I am actually surprised. And there might be, for all I know, um, some sort of actual real life analog of a, a serial killer that used uh, his occupation as a, as a film developer in a film lab as, as a way, as a strategy to find his victims because oh, it's that brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. It's you, in, you would it's think. In, yeah. It's absolutely ingenious. That's like the perfect kind of Avenue to utilize, to find people and, you know, and, C- and casing a house without and, having to be in the house. Exactly. To stake out and stake out your victims. So yeah, totally sick. Love that. Um, let's see what else the soundtrack. Big, big deal for me. Another thing that the soundtrack, again, couples with the color palette and how it it drives the narrative. And 
It's so overwhelming. It is not in the background. It is like it can a be a time character in the movie. Like, it, well, yeah, it's not. It's yeah. I I I wouldn't say that it's uh, full bore the entire time. But when it comes in, like when they purposely want to drive home something, it's like a a fucking character in the movie. Like the Indigata Davida sequence is so crazy that song is like somebody else in the room it's like its own character it it's it it's crazy the choices they made in the in the soundtrack are are expert yeah we could we could i feel like there could be a whole whole essay or book written about that final scene with inagata davida utilized like there's so there's much so much going on there's so it's, much going on <laughs> that can be dissected and extracted and studied uh, as someone who appreciates film and, and makes film that part alone and the use of that song, but not even just that. I mean, there's the, the other like kind of incidental music that you hear throughout the movie, especially in the beginning that sets this, this kind of ominous tense tone throughout, you know, just this kind of low humming, synth these low hertz kind of you know beds textures of sound that you know imbue what's going on that did right you, there did you i don't know if you know off the top of your head or saw any research was there is a song specifically and i don't remember the sequence or the name of the song mm-hmm. um but it reminded me so much of uh, Silence of the Lambs, the Q Lazarus Goodbye Horses song. Um, what I'm trying to ask here is, I wonder how much uh, Silence of the Lambs was influenced uh, soundtrack-wise, because um, that Q Lazarus song is basically what is in Manhunter only, you know, in 20 different versions of of that song, but I'm sure uh, that, that it was definitely looked upon as a way to kind of, dev- I mean, it's gotta be purposeful to have like this Neo post-punk synth stuff mm-hmm. as like the backdrop of your main villain in both movies in right. both adaptations. It seems the goodbye horses scene, the tucking and the dancing goodbye <laughs> horses is like my favorite cinematic thing that's ever been put to film yeah uh demi does such a good job and i'm not even trying to pit demi against michael mann i i I couldn't possibly Mm -hmm. they're both just like upper echelon directors but he demi had uh, had to have uh borrowed that idea and or been inspired by manhunter in some aspect i'm sure he was i'm sure that's no coincidence at all and incidentally i think the song that you're referring to uh, in Manhunter, it's, it's by Shriekback. I saw that. I saw Shriekback, but I couldn't. I couldn't pinpoint whether or not that was the specific song I was thinking of. But if you're saying that it sounds kind of like that Goodbye Horses song, then that's fucking totally it. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure I know which song you're talking about, and that that would be that Shriekback song. And it 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 reappears throughout the movie. It, it doesn't make just one appearance. So, no, not at all.
I could just talk forever about that that end sequence at Dollar Eye's house. There's so much about it that's so cool. And speaking of that se- that sequence reminded me the Dollar Hyde home is just dope as fuck. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's just so crazy. The design of the home, it, it's like this new modernism design with like the lunar back backdrop shit that he literally he busts through that other wall to come through it. Like that's such a great sequencing, but the weird modernism uh, that like new modernism that propped up in like the 1950s of probably the closest homes will ever look to futuristic. Um, his home is crazy. And they built that fucking house by a river, like specifically for the movie and whoever was the set designer on that. It's just every time they go back to the dollar hide lair, it's it, blows my mind every time i keep grabbing things that i didn't see previously from the wallpaper to just the layout in general it's so crazy good yeah that house that that setting is otherworldly and that was something i definitely picked up on this watch was this possible subtext there that <laughs> i'm actually kind of developing this as we're talking about is this Which is great, yeah. This idea that that Dollar Hyde himself is like an otherworldly being. He's 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 a monster just in the way he looks. He's this very pale, gargantuan, lanky kind of figure. He's he's very. He doesn't look of this world. He's very yes. He's very alien, monstrous looking, and he lives in this this lair that you can't really it. it you can't really make heads or tail also of like how large it is. Cause from the shots outside, it doesn't look like it's a big place, but it seems to be fairly labyrinthine within and just, yeah, the, the use of having like photos of, of the moon and lunar landscapes and the celestial, you know, so the celestial astrophysics sort of shots again, lends this whole feeling that, you know, this is, this is on a different planet. This is all taking place in a different planet on a different world. It, it was, it was, um, yeah. If I, if someone put a, put a gun to my head, and was like, name the fucking three things you love about man. <laughs> yeah. Which I hope someday happens. Yeah. Um, I would say uh dollar ride home would be top three. Um, absolutely. Um, the only other silly one that I put on here was that Kim greased uh, should win the award for best Glenn close impersonation. Cause she looked so much like Glenn close uh, specifically from uh, fatal attraction that it was like distracting to me. Absolutely. And I'm, yeah. And, but that was also a look for the time. So I don't know it how it was, but like I looked up, I looked up, Kim greased mm-hmm. and she does not fucking look like that. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. She looks so much like Glenn. Cl- I love the Glenn close vibes. I, I'm not saying this is a negative. It's definitely on the yeah. good. It was, uh, it was also great. Um, and we're going to be heavy on the good because I imagine that our bad and questionable aren't lengthy and, or, uh, as pronounced, which is fine. Totally. I wanted to mention another thing too, and then maybe we could probably move forward as far as good. 
good, good for me, standout good is the scene where the 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 inferno, the flaming atrocity that is Freddie Lowndes in the wheelchair is speeding down that corridor into the parking lot is 100% one of the most terrifying sequences in a movie that I've ever seen. It's just, it's unreal that going out that way, like doing that to a person and going out that way is fucked up. (laughs) It is. It, it, It's so good. And and you, you cut to the security guard. You just get the security guard reaction twice. Like he turns around and it's like, Oh, it's nothing. And then he turns oh. around again. It's oh, it's so definitely good. something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And your yeah. mind races when he looks up the ramp, your mind races in terms of, uh, what the fuck is like, what the hell is going like the first time I saw it? Um, unfortunately it was ruined for me because I saw red dragon before I saw mm-hmm. Manhunter. but I, I suppose the first time I saw red dragon, I was, <laughs> you're like, what is coming around that corner? And like, why is it a flame? It looks like, and that's like the last thing you expect to see. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is one of us, uh, of the most standout kill scenes in a movie, uh, that I would definitely put in uh, my list for sure. So I feel like we, we touched upon most of them for me. Uh, Bad. What did you think was bad about this? I, you know, I had to really scrape. Um, The kid who plays Will's son kind of (laughs) sucks. The scene in the grocery store where he's like, did he, did, Daddy, did he hurt you? <laughs> like I did the whole. I he just was not a very good actor. Again, when we're talking about movies that are of this uh, quality, it's it's going to be hard to find bad. But um, the '80s neckties. The what the hell ever happened to the, the the tie that like is cut straight at the bottom? Like what the fuck was going <laughs> on there? Like everybody had it. Like Lowndes had it. Graham had it. Yeah, uh, that was a bad look. That went away it never came back um and then the only other bad i had was um will grant if we talk about bad plans all the time people being bad at their job will graham is the michael jordan of uh of profiler so i'm not saying he's bad at his job but his plan to apprehend dollar hide he gets so wrapped up in the emotion of it uh, smashing through uh, the front window was just a very bad plan, especially when you have a gun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, definitely a bad plan there, but made for a really cool scene. Oh my God. Because of it, we get one of the best scenes. And you know, the only way Michael Mann could even justify it was that you're literally watching somebody get murdered. From the outside, all he sees is uh, dollar hide a woman on a table and he has a shard of mirror in his hand uh so for all intents and purposes will graham probably just thought this woman is literally getting murdered i have no more time to waste but at the mm-hmm. same rate you have you have the jump on him he doesn't know you're there uh take a shot there uh right you know that just seems yeah obviously that for the movie that would have been so so much less cool yeah that was, I, I feel like that was, they were trying to 
you know, develop a little bit of suspension of disbelief or, you know, try to get you to look past any sort of like plot holishness just to really create what was a, a very dramatic action packed sort of sequence right there. And that was uh, all my bad though. I, I literally didn't have anything else. That's all you got. So my bads would basically kind of intertwine with what you were saying <laughs> more or less. Uh, bad plans as far as I go, not necessarily that one, but what I would say as far as bad plans in terms of did not age well was the plan to draw out dollar hide for the steak, uh, steak out, uh, <laughs> by inferring, you know, that he was a homosexual, you know, and the implications therein that that's, that there's, you know, sort some sort of, you know, uh, mental illness, uh, you know, implied by him being homosexual. And so that was, you know, really trying to like dig in on that whole aspect that that didn't age very well. That's the only, literally the only thing that doesn't age well about Silence of the Lambs is the whole uh, cross-dressing trans kind of thing and right. it making you a serial killer or ominous in, in some capacity. Yeah, sure. that's the only thing that takes me out of Silence of the Lambs sometimes. But um, in in this, I to argue, to play devil's advocate, I would say that they are purposely saying the things that they think a uh, a serial killer would not want to hear to lure him out. Not in in the respect of that is not his mo, and they know that, right. and so they are purposely being like he molests the male victims. He's a closeted homosexual. They're they're saying the things that they know are incorrect. Uh, because that would lure him out more effectively if, if I were to even argue. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's funny because when dollar height is having that, when he's having his, you know, the interaction there with Lowndes after he's kidnapped Lowndes and he's talking to him about that, he kind of like dollar height kind of takes that and turns it on itself when he goes in to what looks to be like give Lowndes a kind of like deep kind of kiss and he ends up just chewing his face off. Essentially he chews his lips off. So I like that. Like he kind of doubles down a little bit and he's like, Oh, so you think I'm gay? Well, I'll show you, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and that, and that scene specifically is in my questionable. I had a question that maybe you could answer, but continue with your bad. Yeah. So again, bad just because you know there's aspects that could be interpreted you know as being insensitive like you said similar to the transphobia that is implied with the silence of the lambs character of james james gum uh what else didn't age well well to go along with what you said about some of the wardrobe the hair the hairstyles specifically will graham's hair that's the thing that came up time and time again with me and my partners. We're like, what the fuck's that? But that's William Peterson in that period because he's got the same kind of hair and in To Live and Die in LA, where it's like this kind of Brillo pad, Brillo pad kind Scott of Bayo. like awkward transition. <laughs> like it's just like either just cut it a little shorter or grow it out a little longer. Like yeah, De- figure like, it out. Like Dennis Farina, you know, he's got a little bit more going on in the back there 
where he can kind of style in a certain way. So that looks like shit. Uh, but also dollar hide, he is only seen wearing these kind of like what looks to be kind of silky blousey kind of thin, <laughs> thin shirts that I don't know. It kind of, that kind of throws me off with thinking about him being this, this, you know, this mal- malicious, violent character, but he, you know, he really loves his kind of s- satiny silk. He gave me major Kramer vibes. He just <laughs> likes to be like loose, loosey goosey. He yes. just likes to feel comfortable. Very loose fitting clothing. Um, and then also in terms of acting that are standout bads, there's one really brief scene where the Florida police officer comes to, to, to get Molly Graham. And it's just like the most like chunk terrific fucking like real brief dialogue. And it's like, where do they get this knucklehead? <laughs> you, it's funny. Cause you, you say that, uh, in our discussions, I'm sure I, you know, I say stuff and, and you say stuff that like, like spurs a thought that you had, but didn't write down. You just yeah. like thought that was weird. I thought it was so weird that, <laughs> that I like, if I were Molly, I, he came off as like impersonating a police officer. Like right. I would have, if I didn't see people like behind the palm trees and shit, I would have like ran for my life. <laughs> I, Cause she knows, she knows that somebody is, something is a foot. Mm. Uh, and this is the asshole that that presents himself. Like I would have, I would have ran. Like his delivery of it is like, I'm pretending to be a sheriff. Like that's like what? Like I can't remember what he says. Please come with me, ma'am. Maybe you can edit in his quote here. I should. It's so fucking. It's so fucking goofy. <laughs> it's yeah. It's it's. I agree. It, it's That's super. It's super wooden and blocky, and it's just like it's real brief. But you're just kind of like, what the fuck's this guy's deal? <laughs> and um, that's it. That's his only role. So I would say, yeah, that's really it. Pretty minor things, you know, in relationship to the massive amounts of very cool things about this. Just absolutely. Some, that's some real nitpicky shit when you get down to it, and a lot of it's just again. You know, it's it's because there's just certain aspects that are um, related to the time period that just didn't age very well, but doesn't 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 ding the the overall impact of the movie. It feels it. Uh, I will say that if we were to come up with a another bad, the movie does feel dated. It can feel um, a little dated at times, for sure. Lounge specifically comes in like a fucking stand-up comedian from the eighties. I mean, he looks like aesthetically, hey! yeah, yeah. He is. He's like a proto uh, Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> he really is. He's just this sleazy eighties shit bag. It's weird. It, it, he comes in. Um, with like a bulldozer, but, but yeah, that, that given what we were watching, I, it, I, we were scraping the bottom of the barrel there to try to find some bad. Yeah. So that brings us to the questionable part where, you know, there was things that we, we, we had questions about that, you know, kind of were middling as far as not great, not bad. Just wondering, like, why was that? Why was that a, a choice that was used? Or you know, if, if there's you know a little bit more development that could go into some of these aspects. So yeah, we got questions. 
hopefully one of us has answers. Mm. Um, and this specifically is good is a good one for you. Will sees a book of war wounds, and that's how he catches Lecter. What does that mean in the book? Do they uh, kind of hash that out a little bit more? He all he says is he sees a book of war wounds, and then he knew that Lecter was the killer. So that aspect, I'll have to reference Red Dragon. I know we said we were trying to limit our references of the the movie Red Dragon oh, itself. Yeah, yeah. But this is what I remember because this ties in with how the book was written. Uh, oh, because Red Dragon has the flashback sequence. In the very beginning. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in the book and in Red Dragon, the movie, it's not a book of war wounds that is discovered or that he makes the revelation about Lecter. It's actually, it's a, it's a um, gas gastronomy book. It's a cookbook basically that details cutting what is called the sweet meats from uh, an animal to use for, for cuisine. And that is what's considered this uh, kind of back quarter area uh, above the kidneys, I believe this fleshy part above the kidneys and the revelation that Graham makes is that wound, those cuts were found in these victims that they had found. And so he makes the connection that, that Lecter is referencing this book and this specific kind of technique for cutting uh, meat from a body to use because you know you know he's he's a cannibal so he's he's cooking their flesh so i don't know why in this movie they say it's war wounds but that's essentially the gist of it is especially i guess they were just swapping it out for you know lector was studying these specific war but again it doesn't make sense because you know i guess unless you're talking about specific strategies that are used to wound soldiers like bayonet sort of jabs and specific parts of the body. I don't really know what that means. Again, it, that was, that was something that didn't really make sense in, in reference to the narrative of, of catching Lecter. It makes more sense for it to be, again, some sort of cooking technique or some, some it sort makes of more. Yeah. Obviously meat, it makes meat, a, a meat lot cutting more sense. Tech. Yeah. So, so again, I don't know why they did that. Weird. Okay. Yeah. And it's just a one-off. He literally just, that's all he says about it. That's all you really know from, from Manhunter's perspective. That's the only thing they even remotely hint at in terms of their interaction of how he caught him. So, right. Um, they didn't trace the home videos. Of, I, like they didn't do a good enough job on the home videos. Like there's a sticker over one of the tapes that threw them off because he says, peel back the sticker and it has the same, uh, mailing address or uh, it comes from the same home video company that dollar hide works for. Mm -hmm. I, I, that was the only part of the movie, the forensic -y kind of stuff where I was like, they just didn't look into trying to, uh, Farina even says we did everything. Like we tried to match them. We tried to put a link between the two home videos. They're completely random. Uh, 
I, I was like, what the fuck? There's only a, there's a, <laughs> there's a piece of tape over it. Like someone dropped the ball there on their job. Yeah. I actually um, didn't pick, I didn't pick that up, but yeah, that's a good call on that one. It was only because they, they, it's the, what he uses to link the uh, link it to dollar hide that I was like, how is this the, how is this the catalyst? No one, no one thought about this before, mm-hmm. but, um, and the only other question I have is, uh, if you're going to use the tattler to taunt dollar hide, wouldn't you put Freddie Lowndes in a secured location? <laughs> Like, yeah, I guess he would maybe come after Will, but right. you're putting him just as much at risk. And you he insisted on taking a picture with Will. I know that everybody in this movie fucking hates him. And <laughs> you you almost are like not even that like bummed that he gets killed right. the way he does. You're fine, totally fine with it. Uh but from an FBI perspective, how do you not put him in some sort of witness protection? And that I means you're using Will as bait, but you're also dragging him into it. Yeah. But yeah. That, I don't, yeah. I mean, other than, other than the fact that they that was just an oversight that they were willing to uh, take because you know he he was he was collateral that they were willing to get removed from the from the picture because he's I think a they sh- were cool with him dying just shitty dude it's like yeah whatever yeah uh, they're like oh fuck freddie Lowndes died that's, that's a real shame yeah no one's gonna miss that motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> so i kind of wanted to talk about brian cox as hannibal lecter and sure. if, if you had any thoughts about him because for me when you when you Put, and when you A B Brian Cox to um, Anthony Hopkins in the role of Lecter, it's hard to decouple those, and I feel like give a, a, a fair shake to Brian Cox in this role because Anthony Hopkins do, did that role so well, does that role so well, and has become so intertwined his performance with how people perceive Lecter as a character that Brian Cox kind of pales in comparison i like him in this movie but for me it's more when he plays lector it's not that he's menacing or there's nothing foreboding or creepy about him like it is with anthony hopkins it's more he's uh he's cunning you can tell there's a certain kind of like cunningness to him and like almost like a there's a sarcasm to him and it's <laughs> from what I did, uh, from the research that I did, uh, I read that he had based how he would do his character off of his his son, his schoolboy son. So he was basing like his character profile off of a serial killer and his son. So there was this almost kind of like um, playful aspect, I guess, or mischievous aspect to how he developed the character profile. But it's not, it's not creepy and like and menacing yeah yeah he he suffers and i mean you've already touched upon this he suffers from somebody doing the role better than he did um but i'm able to compartmentalize those feelings and um i judge his performance as uh, a piece that exists uh not only before but separate from Anthony Hopkins. So I'm not as 
Um, because if you're going, if you're going to, and it's impossible, it's almost impossible not to, but if you're going to go into it, knowing he's Hannibal Lecter, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it, that's tough. That's tough to compare it to the, the Hopkins character, but I think he does do an excellent job. I, I, I don't have a, a problem with the way he portrayed it. And, you know, I'll throw this out there. I think Demi got more out of Hopkins than Michael Mann got out of Brian Cox. I think it is uh, what Anthony Hopkins did was was obviously stellar, but I think Demi got him there, and I think Michael Mann uh, viewing this as a whole was more uh, composed with what Dollar Hyde comes across as, as opposed to his his touch with Lecter, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I agree. I, it's that's tough. It's it's a tough comparison. Sure, it, sure. In the in the respect that Anthony Hopkins is is uh, so much better. <laughs> Absolutely. He he. You know he. Again, he made that role legendary. So, I think that's all I got as far as that. I, I, we've we've we ran down everything that I had. Yeah, that's really it. Questions have been answered. Questions have been discussed, so we can move on now. <laughs> if not answered, definitely touched upon. Touched upon. category section here and we're going to start it off with some quotes that we uh were tickled by or we found interesting or bad or whatnot just things that that we uh picked up throughout the movie that you know we want to talk about so what do you have i have one um it's the best quote in the movie uh to me it's not even close um it's dollar hide talking to lounge um I had parts of it, but really the whole, to put it in perspective, the whole quote is, gives it the scope, but he's talking to Lowndes and he says, before me, you are a slug in the sun. You are privy to a great becoming, but you recognize nothing. You are an ant in the afterbirth. It is in your nature to do one thing correctly, tremble, but fear is not what you owe me. No lounge, you and the others, you owe me awe. That is so like fucking nuts. Like if somebody was, <laughs> if somebody was torturing me and, and just rattled that off, I'd be like, you know what? I am the, weird uh ant of the afterbirth uh trembling before you <laughs> yeah and 
we talked about this with with the cliffhanger episode where really the best quotes come from the villains in a lot of ways you know and we've got some real choice ones in that in this movie for sure that whole monologue the dollar hide gives the lounge is to me yeah just legendary and it goes back to talking about how dollar hide is this otherworldly kind of kind of uh individual or at least he's definitely you know again through this whole process of you know why he kills people and this ritual he is trying to attain this kind of godlike status yeah he's trying to he's trying to he's trying to transcend his his mere mortal sort of status to become something greater and something unstoppable and that whole what he says allows is a perfect indication of that what what he has in his mind for sure so yeah i obviously had that as well um I had a couple choice lecture quotes that ties into what we were just talking about with there's good ones. Yeah. With, he with, has uh, great ones. with uh dollar Hyatt's whole mindset and, and what he's trying to convey to will as far as like, you know, what this guy is thinking and why he's doing what he's doing for one. Uh, there's the, have you ever seen blood in the moonlight? It appears quite black. That one's great. That's very, very creepy. And then if one is does, that, is that, uh, sorry is that in silence of the lambs it sounds exact it sounds like something he says in silence of the lambs almost verbatim i i thought he says that to clarice um, i don't i don't believe so i don't sounds, think that gets repeated it sounded so familiar but that that's a yes that one's great it may it may just be overall like the cadence of that kind of phrase you know i feel like is is similar to some things that that's like possible. Yeah. He says in silence of the lambs as well. Um, because there's that kind of questioning aspect to it where he's, he's questioning the person that he's talking to, you know, or this rhetorical kind of aspect to it. Um, and then uh, going back to uh dollar high, it's whole pursuit of kind of transcending his, his, his worldly body. And if one does what God does enough times, one will become as God is. I have that one too. Yeah, and and that relates to talking about cliffhanger when there's the whole quote from John Lithgow's character where he says, "Kill one man, you know." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a, you're a murderer. Kill many men, and you're a conqueror. That whole thing. So <laughs> again, there's this kind of recurrence of these sort of lines and quotes that are delivered by the villains. But yeah, so those were some two main ones that I had from those guys. And I just realized what I'm thinking of. Hopkins says it in Red Dragon. Um, the Have you ever seen Blood in the Moonlight? It, it appears quite black. I knew Hopkins delivered that line. I just couldn't. It, he says it in Red Dragon. He says it in Red Dragon? Yeah. Yeah. See, they, they have the exact same. He says that, and he says you you wore that same atrocious aftershave you wore in court. They have that same a banter about the about the aftershave, right? Well, and I just had a thought while I was saying that, and and, and while uh, you were saying it back to me, uh, his, as far as cadence goes, and and kind of overlapping certain cadences to 
phrases on villains. It sounds a lot like also that legendary line that uh, Jack Nicholson's Joker gives to the Batman. Have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? I asked that of all, you know, it's like, again, there's this similar kind of cadence to it, this rhetorical questioning kind of aspect. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Uh, And, um, other than that, I had one other one that I thought was really, really cool. This whole uh, exchange that Graham has with Lecter when they're talking about, you know, why Lecter was caught. And, you know, he, he says, you had disadvantages. And he asks, what, what are those? And he says, well, you're insane. <laughs> that is that one's so good man yeah. yeah i didn't i didn't throw that on my list but that one that one's up there yeah um but the dollar hide quote is the winner right yeah oh i i did have another one another dollar hide one yes. that's really sick open your eyes or i'll staple your eyelids to your forehead <laughs> that one's good <laughs> that one is good just just terrifying what a just a monster <laughs> just the if i were to isolate part of that monologue just the fact that he says you owe me awe is so that's so tight and bone chilling it's fucking great yeah any others is that it no no i i'm of the belief that that dollar hide monologue is is the winner it's if, it's if i could just have one long quote it's in a lot of ways i feel like the centerpiece of the script it really is yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like the 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 movie kind of is like it fulcrums off of that, you know. So definitely one of the better monologues in a movie. Um, so that brings us to our next category, which of course is in reference to legendary character actor Mr. Dick Miller, and this is our uh, spot the dick category where we try to pick out other similar similar kind of character actors in movies that you see time and time again. They're only there for a little bit. They're in everything, it seems like. And whenever they're in a movie, you always remember what they've done. And you're like, but who is that person that, you know, you can't quite put your finger on, like, maybe some of the other things you've seen them in. Uh, oh, that guy. That guy. Definitely a that guy or gal sort of situation. So in this movie... Uh, did you spot yourself a dick there, Pat? I found my dick, and he goes by the name of Frankie Faison, uh, who plays Lieutenant Fisk. Um, but he, he is more famous for playing Barney uh, in the, the security guard in all of the Hannibal series. I mean, he's in Silence of the Lambs and, and Hannibal and Red Dragon. Um so it was nice to see a familiar face from the Hannibal series. He's the only person in this movie, correct me if I'm wrong, that goes on to be in the other movies. Um, well, I will correct you because you Okay, are, go ahead. In fact, that uh, there is another person who I considered as being my spot the dick, but uh, that would be Dan Butler. Dan Butler is also Dan in this movie. Butler. Yeah, he, uh, and he is another actor that makes an appearance in silence of the lambs who is he in this he is in this movie he's jimmy price and i believe um in this movie he's he's one of the forensics experts that if i remember correctly he's talking to them in the dark room where they're trying to analyze the the note i believe and what is he in silence of the lambs 
in Silence of the Lambs, he's another forensics guy, I think. But, oh, Jesus. This is that you found yourself a deep dick. That's that's a deep dick. Yeah, for sure. So there are two two actors that make appearances in the in different capacities in other Thomas Harris related movies. Frankie Faison being one and and, and then Dan and, Buck. And that's your dick? No, I just I, I just wanted to correct you because you weren't, oh, weren't sure. Okay. I was like, man, that's weird that we picked the two that uh that appear in, in the other Hannibal movies. Well, yeah. so Frankie Faison, uh thank you for correcting me. I did I didn't know that at all. Yeah. Um he's in Chud, which is great. Uh coming to America, do the right thing, maximum overdrive, and he plays like the a bit role in pretty much all of those movies and but most beloved for being Barney in uh the entire Hannibal series. Um so that is my dick. Who's your dick then if it's not uh, the but that butler guy? I honestly had a real hard time trying to figure out who was my dick in this one. Uh, because I think when I've done this before in the previous episodes, I kind of fudged the rules a little bit and just like basically found somebody that was like, had a bit part in a movie, but wasn't necessarily somebody that has recurred in many roles throughout the years, quite like Dick Miller, like his acting roster or his or her acting roster doesn't like get up into the hundreds. So I try, I'm trying to stick to the criteria here a little bit more. Sure. And, uh, you know, it's like I, but I wanted to say Chris Elliott, but we already talked about Chris Elliott, you know? Yeah. And he's more prominent in all of his roles. Right. And he's not necessarily a character actor in that sense. Like he, you know, he, he has a, he has distinct associations with things and it has had leading roles, had his own show. Um, so Frankie Faison was definitely somebody I considered, I guess, other than that, the other person that I thought about was Stephen Lang, who played Lounds. That's a good one. I I looked at his uh, filmography, and um, once I saw like Avatar, I've never seen Avatar. Once I saw like Avatar and all these, I, it looked like he had a, like a more prominent career. Is the only reason I didn't go down that wormhole. Yeah. Well, and again. Yeah, he's a guy that is has a very extensive acting career. He's I'm sorry that I know he's been in at least like 130 different roles over the past 30 to 40 years. The thing with me is when I was looking through everything he's been in, I hadn't seen a lot of it, a lot of the movies he's been in. But there was one movie of note that I have seen that I wanted to point out that makes this guy... um actually somebody that I really like as an actor and it's not this movie but have you ever seen this movie called Don't Breathe? <laughs> wait. No, no, I haven't. Okay. Wait, is it uh, is it is it the uh, wait, is he the blind guy in the house? Absolutely. Isn't that Holy nuts? Holy shit, that's him? That's him. And it, that's what I mean. Like that holy shit moment you had right there when I found out after I saw Don't Breathe and I made that connection, I was like, that's crazy because holy there's, fuck. There's such a there's such a wide expanse of time between this role and Don't Breathe that obviously he's aged pretty 
you know, dramatically. I hesitated and, because I was was like, yeah, I've seen Don't Breathe, but what I'm thinking of couldn't possibly have had him in it. And then no. I it, I had I had I like went through my Rolodex in my head and was and was like, holy fuck, yeah, he's the 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 blind guy. He's the he's the psychotic blind guy and don't breathe and that's another thing that it's hard for me to make that connection because as freddie Lowndes, he plays that you know like we were saying that kind of like oh it's it's dramatically different 180 yeah shitheaded kind of like scummy like hey yeah whatever man but like don't breathe he plays like this terrifying and that is an undercover great. I saw it in theaters and I was yeah. like blown away. It is Same. so good. Yeah, I, I saw it in theaters as well. Uh, Charlotte and I went and we saw it together and we walked out of the theater after we watched it being like, what the fuck did we just watch? It's so good. <laughs> it's, it's, so real, good. it's really, really good. Yeah, It's just like a roller coaster of a movie that takes you through so many different like twists and turns. And when you think it's done and they're like, oh shit, there's this new thing that happens. And yeah, so... Stephen Lang plays that guy, so I guess he's my dick. I like it. I yeah. And the epiphany that I had was all all the worthwhile there. Yeah. So we go. We got our dicks out of the way. That brings us to the next thing, which is, hey Pat, in this movie, what character w- would you replace with our dear friend Harry Dean Stanton? I would have. This was a, a thinker. I really had to think about it. But then when I came to my conclusion, I was I was confident with it. Freddie Lowndes. Right. I thought he would play a great Freddie Lowndes. I think he could be uh, slimy and like in Repo Man kind of um, channeling that sort of energy a little bit. But like used car salesman-y, I yeah. think he would do a great, uh, I think he would would be a fantastic Freddie Lowndes. Yeah. And I consider that myself. I think I ultimately landed on replacing, um, Crawford, Dennis Farina. Uh, oh, can't, Oh, cannot. I, I cannot replace Dennis. First of all, RIP sweet, <laughs> sweet, sweet Dennis Farina. <laughs> I continue, but I am appalled. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'll get to why I made that decision in my head, but I also wanted to say, since we haven't really talked about Dennis Farina this whole time, but no, we like, haven't, uh, um, which he was, you know, definitely a, a highlight of the movie and his, you know, his, his portrayal of Crawford is fucking amazing, but I wanted to point out, and I know you would appreciate this too, being a Bears, I, you're a Bears fan, right? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I thought so. I, I thought that was like the thing that you and Kyle definitely had bonded over. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you notice how how thick the Chicago is with yeah. this with this cast, right? Yeah, it's absolutely. like some serious Chicago fucking. I know Farina in real life was a was a Chicago police officer. And that um, makes sense. He like before he became an actor, he was a fucking Chicago PD uh, for for a long time, which okay. is a very strange career arc uh, right. for him. It's kind of like uh, Eddie Money was a New York cop, dude. Yeah, that kind of shit is is wild because you think you would just become so run down f- for having to be a fucking a cop 
uh, all those years, especially in Chicago, that cannot be it easy to ask. Not, not easy. Yeah. And to turn that off and become an actor and a prominent one, it, it is nuts. I, I love Dennis Farina for, um, for that reason. And, and a little movie called midnight run, which right. I, which I adore, but, um, continue. Yeah. yeah so, cause I had considered the, the, the Freddie Lowndes, you know, switch as well. And so I wanted to dodge that because I knew you would probably make that, <laughs> that call. You knew no, it. Yeah. Yeah. So my next choice would have been to switch out with Crawford. And I thought of that because I kind of made this analogy to um, Harry Dean Stanton's role in Christine, where he plays hmm. a detective in that. And for me, it's like in Christine, he plays as, Basically, he's a cool-headed detective, but when you piss him off, he's able to kind of, like, let you have it just right, where he's not, like, getting angry and in your face, but he, like, he has a he has a way of kind of, you know, shut, shutting down somebody, you know, in a manner that I felt could be a cool kind of dynamic with this, whereas, like, the Dennis Farina interpretation of Crawford is it's very animated in a lot of ways. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, he gets, he gets worked up and, you know, I, I guess that was, that would have been an interesting kind of uh, dynamic to see Harry Dean Stanton play this more kind of cool headed detective. But when he wants to shut somebody down, he knows how to do it with just the right, you know, words and, and not like let his emotions take control too much. So I don't know. That was my, that was my best stab at it. If for what it's worth, I think Farina didn't have to reach very hard. I mean, I bet he just, uh, I bet he just channeled a lot of that Chicago PD energy into that role. Right, and I know um, that, that they they had worked with uh, Chicago Forensics. Yeah. Also, yeah. in the making of this movie, to kind of develop how they were going to take on these roles. So there's again very a lot of Chicago going on with not. With the crew, with the actors, it's 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 funny that like this movie, you know, it takes place in the South and in Washington, but you know the 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 cast itself is very Midwest Chicago. Yeah, and the only time you go to Chicago in the movie is when Lecter calls the psychologist or psychiatrist in Chicago to get Will Graham's information. I think that's the only time you are. It's even mentioned, yeah, or that you even quote unquote travel there. You travel there by through via his uh, phone conversation, but that's about it, right? So yeah, so that was my Harry Dean Stanton. Not not, I feel like not the not the best take on it. I, I definitely side more with yours on this, but that was. I don't have a problem with him being that character. Uh, I just. I it's it has more to do with my love for Farina not be, I wouldn't be able to um replace Farina and that's what is so difficult about this uh category is you want to replace you want to put Harry Dean Stanton in the movie and he might fit in a good role but who was cho- who w- who was picked for the role previously may just be so ingrained exactly in the character that it's hard to choose but yeah you want yeah. you want to swap him out for somebody that you think didn't quite hit all the numbers then you know our man would come in like the fucking wolf and deliver oh, I, i've got i've got all the yeah i've, I've got all the confidence in in, <laughs> in in hds for sure that brings us to our next 
category, which is the wiki wormhole. This is our final category, our, 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 our next and final category of the wiki wormhole. And there was definitely, there was some, there was some choice little nuggets I found out about this movie that I liked a lot, but go ahead and uh, I'll uh, let you lead it off. Well, I will lead it off with a category that we impromptu came up with last uh, episode, which is body count. Oh yes. Let's, let's um, not forget the body count. I came up with 15 people and two pets. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> thank, thank you for giving due respect to the pets. RIP to the the cat and the dog that get offed. Um, yeah. Pet, pets are people too. <laughs> yes. 15 people, two pets. Pets are people too. Um, all, yeah. all, all, all said though, not more than per- you thought it was. L- well, no, but I, I was going to say, not a particularly gory film. There are some, there's some insinuations of gore. And right insinu- before there, everybody gets it. Uh, they usually cut like uh, when Lowndes is about to get it, they cut and then he's coming uh, a blaze down the ramp, but yeah, he's, he's yeah, coming- you don't see the, the, the cutting up of Lowndes or anything like that. I would say the most drastically gory graphic aspect is when Graham goes to assess the house of the first family and there's, you know, there's the blood splatter, the blood spray all throughout the bedroom. Yeah. Early on, there's a lot of blood splatter shit. Um, but yeah, other than that, it's not a very bloody movie. I, yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. It's a lot, it's a lot of either implied through, you know, talking about the victims um, because the, these victims, you know, they they did get dealt a pretty pretty bad hand uh, by Dollar Eye. They're, it's a pretty they're pretty gruesome murders all in all when you when you get into the details. But it's not it's not shown in the movie itself, which yeah, I feel like again that's doing that is what made this movie uh, you know salvageable uh, for many critics as being you know, a great movie unto itself as opposed to a, you know, a specifically a genre movie that could get written off as just absolutely being, you know, just being gratuitous or whatever. So I agree. And he could have gone there. Um, Rennie Harlan's version of Manhunter would have gone there. Hey, right? let's see if that happens. <laughs> see if there's, there's a, there's a third version that comes out with Rennie, Rennie Harlan at the hell. <laughs> I would fucking love it. Um, some quick notes. Uh, did you know that they shot Noonan? Every single scene with, with Tom Noonan was shot twice. Once with the full tattoo makeup and once without it. Because they didn't know whether or not they wanted to include it. That is crazy. He had to do every single scene that he did in this movie with the full tattoo shit and without it. Because they just didn't make up their mind on whether... And they ultimately decided, obviously, not to do it. And uh, Ralph Fiennes... Um, is tatted up in in the Red Dragon version, right? Well, I actually didn't know that it was every scene. I thought it was just very. I thought it was specific select. Scenes. I read uh, I read a Q and A with Noonan where he specifically said they he they would do the full tattooed makeup, then scrub shoot, and then scrub him off and shoot again. Okay, wow, what the fuck? That is nuts. Yeah. Um, Options for Lecter in terms of casting. John Lithgow, Brian Dennehy, Mandy Patinkin. 
Um, oh, and also, also William Friedkin. Really? Yeah, William Friedkin was considered going back to that the Chicago pal aspect. That makes of this sense. Movie. Wow. Yeah, I did not know that. Yeah. Um, for what it's worth, I know you were you were a little bit down on the Brian Cox performance. I would have had him over all those uh, actors. No, um, I, I I fully agree. When you when you pit Brian Cox against all those other actors, oh, they all would have lost to uh, Hopkins. I agree. Absolutely. Um, but it's funny too when, when I was reading about that uh, this and I found out about Lithgow because we were talking about Lithgow last last week in his roles yeah. as a villain. <laughs> Comes up again. There he is again. That you know apparently you know people saw it in Lithgow that he had the potential to be a villain. And the interesting thing here is Lithgow, Dennehy, and Patankin are all Americans. Uh, so they obviously went with a Cox being a, uh, a British actor. Right. Um, Which again, wise move. I thought it was, yeah, they did the right move. Well, and it's also because Lecter, um, the character Lecter himself is European. Yeah. Yeah. So it, they, Yeah. There would have had to be some leaps if they did any other casting. Yeah. This is maybe the most interesting thing I found. And I really hope you didn't read this because I feel like this will blow your fucking brain. You know how they have all those uh, links between Lincoln and Kennedy? Oh, yeah. Like supposedly Kennedy's secretary was named Lincoln and Lincoln's uh, secretary. Yeah. (laughs) So when Manhunter was being shot... um, Anthony Hopkins was playing King Lear uh, on stage at the National Theater. Five years later, during the production of Silence of the Lambs, when Hopkins was obviously playing the Lecter role, Brian Cox was playing King Lear at the same theater. Yeah, I did read that. That's pretty what crazy. What the <laughs> hell is that? <laughs> I know. Isn't that nuts? That is yeah. beyond nuts and serendipitous. I don't know what that even is. That is like, I don't even, it blows my mind. That is not even a coincidence. That's like, that is, that is crazy. Yeah. It's, it's really crazy when you find out about those, those weird little, those weird little kind of, you know, like, uh, helixes that happen within. So strange. Know, yeah. So, did you want to get into, uh, I'm sure in your research, you found this, how crazy Michael Mann is? No, actually, I, I'm I'm not very aware of it. So please do tell. He is fanatical, uh, just a, a driving people to the brink of insanity. And this I pulled from the Tom Noonan uh, Q&A. Um, he said, quote, this is Tom Noonan talking about Michael Mann on set. He would yell at people a lot. He would make Joan Allen cry sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, Joan Allen played the uh, Reba, the blind woman. I thought she was really good. Sometimes she'd do a take and he would come in yelling, what the fuck? You think anyone's going to believe that shit? Maybe I'm exaggerating. It's been a while, but it was tense. (laughs) So I feel like that is a hallmark really of a lot of these better known legendary directors that they are all just it's definitely a kubrick thing i've you know it's it's not just kubrick i've heard that with sam peckinpah i was just listening uh to a show where they were talking about sam peckinpah being the same way just being this this relentless fucking maniac just just driving his, his cast 
to, you know, grinding them down emotionally to get the most out of them, to get the most out of them. So, yeah, so that doesn't it 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 just seems to be a, a, a thing with old school directors. Now, I don't know how much, you know, that's the case anymore. But, but if you're in his inner circle, and this was a Kubrick thing too, if you were in his inner circle, he didn't do, he didn't necessarily. Although Noonan does talk about being driven to the point of insanity of shooting like twenty hour days and uh, being asked to come back in two hours and do another twenty hour, like just losing his mind. Michael Mann is a no- notorious uh, multi shot. Like no shot is good enough. Do do one entire scene for mm. 20 hours and maybe have the shot you want but yeah um but that does seem to be a thing that kind of goes with the territory with a lot of those guys that uh i know from what i know of like francis for coppola same thing especially during the filming of of uh apocalypse now yeah from what i've gathered of that and what i've read and, and watched is it just sounds like it was hellish yeah and you know and sometimes you wonder how much better the movie was because of it but yeah um the only other michael mann story that i read from this specifically is almost nuttier than than him making joan allen cry from the same q a with tom noonan he said there were probably 60 or 70 people on the crew and there was a turnover of like 80 jobs on the movie (laughs) the first scene i ever had was when i'm sitting in the van and joan is on the front steps there was a little tiny imperfection in the van that wasn't even in the shot. You'd never seen it. You would never see it in a million years. He complained to the producers. He was really upset. And the guy disgraced him with, and the guy disagreed with him a little, sorry, and said, Michael, just calm down. They're going to fix it. He said, no, I'm telling you what's going to happen. When I turn around, they are not going to be there. I'm never going to see anyone again in this art department. And the guy said, okay, Michael. And they fired 70 people in the art department. They never, they didn't work on, on Manhunter again. He got a whole new art department of 70 new fucking people. What a, what a petulant, petty fucking thing to do. <laughs> Crazy. It's, it's, it actually endears him, me to him. I don't know why. I just love psychopaths and I love that he's just, yeah, crazy. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's endearing. <laughs> yeah. I, I love it too. It's, it's, it's very similar to like these like crazy, like celebrity chefs and how fucking bat shit they are. But at the same time, I'm like, God, I, I really, I, it was a shot that didn't even matter. <laughs> didn't even matter. That's crazy. What the fuck? What, what did you find? Those are the, the wormhole I went down was mainly just Michael Mann being nuts and Tom Noonan talking about it. And out, outside of these quotes, Tom Noonan would then be like, "But yeah, fuck Michael Mann rules. Like I love him. I love working with him. I'd do an, a million more movies with him. Like he's oh, yeah. not saying anything. All this shit that he's saying is just total truth. And he would always end all of these quotes with, "Loved working for the guy. Would we'll do it again." Right on. So Tom Noonan's but, kind of out there though. So <laughs> I feel like, yeah, he, you know, he's probably got a pretty thick skin himself. So yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> um, I had some pretty cool ones, uh, that I, that I found, uh, Michael Mann's use of Inagata de Vida in the movie was inspired by a correspondence that he actually had with, with, uh, a death row murderer named Dennis Wayne Wallace and Dennis Wayne Wallace 
he had told Michael Mann that um, In a God of Davida was a song that inspired him to murder this woman that he was in love with or something wow, like that. Wow, I didn't know any of that. Or he Holy made this so he made that he had this association of that song with this woman that he had an infatuation with and ultimately murdered. Jesus. So yeah, so Michael Mann had gleaned that information and it's like, well that's that's great. That's that I'm gonna use that for the for the film. Um you'll like this again going back to the the Chicago buddy aspect of yeah. this. Uh because Will William Peterson is also from Chicago, and he was such a diehard Bears fan that he left uh, shooting in Georgia to go watch a Bears game in Washington D.C. What the fuck? <laughs> and to date, so this movie came out the year I was born, nineteen eighty-six. Yeah, um, I don't know what time of you know, so it had to have been during football season, but this is the. Uh, season after their Super Bowl win, so. so yeah, so this would be like the the golden age of yeah the of, fridge uh, Walter Payton absolutely uh, yeah holy the, shit that's 80, great eighty six Bears man you're coming you're coming with the uh, wow Jesus yeah. yeah you saw the eighty six Bears which obviously they didn't win a Super Bowl again after eighty five but still yeah um damn that's good yeah that was a cool one I thought that was pretty funny. So we talked about this a little bit in the beginning when we were talking about the Eber quote. Um, so David Lynch was originally considered to direct this. He walked, <laughs> fuck, holy right. shit! And he walked off the project because what exactly? He said something along the lines that he thought that the the script was uh, violent and degenerate. Oh, too too violent for him. Too violent and degenerate. Okay. He he didn't want anything to do with it. How far, how far along, how close did he get to doing it? I wonder, like, was this pre-production stuff? I have no idea how far along they got with it. I, for what it's worth, uh, his manhunter would suck. (laughs) I don't want to see his manhunter. I, I, I just, it's a movie that needs to be more straightforward and cannot be ambiguous and weird and all that shit. I, it, it's Michael Mann is the only person that should have directed this. Well, to, to Lynch's credit though, this was during that period of time where he was making movies that were a little bit more grounded in. Did the elephant man come out around this time? It was before, Mm. but this is, this would have been on the heels of him doing Dune. Yeah. Which, you know, there's people have, they take umbrage for various reasons with, Lynch's adaptation of, of oh, that God, book. Yeah, we could go into a Dune, <laughs> a Dune wormhole and never come out. Release this <laughs> the six hour Manhunter episode. Everyone's gonna be like, "That's tight." We I got through the first three hours, and then they started talking about fucking Dune for another three hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think it, they would have been doing you know the story any sir any great service by having Lynch on board. But it was interesting that he was considered. And apparently his connection, there's some sort of also weird connection between um, his Elephant Man and Anthony Hopkins and ending up uh, in the role of Lecter. Oh, I could could see that connection. I think think, uh, Demi, he directly pointed to that role as being why he wanted Anthony Hopkins. Wow, okay. So there's that connection. Um, 
so this is funny too for the role of will graham don johnson richard gear and jeff bridges were all considered but also johnson was considered for the role of dollar hide fuck that fuck that exactly but give me Richard Gere as Will Graham. I love that. I think that's excellent. There's part of me that's like into that idea, but then there's part of me that thinks that maybe Richard Gere would have been a little too cocksure in the role. Like I feel like there's, there's a- off the top of our Richard Gere heads. <laughs> did like an officer and a gentleman just come out? Like I'm not sure where where to place him in his career in 1986. Um yeah, it would have been around the time of maybe that and, and an American gigolo. An officer and a gentleman was 82, so shit. Um, yeah. yeah. Are you saying, because this is what I'm thinking, that it's he would have too much of star too much star power for that role? Sure. Whereas you see Peterson and you're like, you're locked in because you don't think of him as an actor playing the role. You just think of him as Will Graham. Exactly. You know, and there's yeah, an, un- there, there's an understated aspect to how he approaches the role. That's, that's convincing that I couldn't see any of like those guys, like Don Johnson, Richard Gere or Jeff Bridges really being able to achieve. Bridges so, would be wild too. Wow. Those are good. What ifs? Yeah. It would have been interesting. Um, let's see what else. Oh, um, Tom Noonan the entire time was completely immersed in method when he was developing um, how he would play dollar high. He kept himself completely separate from the rest of the crew um, and was only engaging in them during shoots. Uh, and this was to develop a heightened tension between him and the cast, which again, just that squarely puts Noonan in, you know, my, upper echelon of character actors as i told you before like the guy knows what the fuck is up and i never see him play a role that isn't you know maxed out he he does everything like fucking perfect yeah it, i i read the same thing about him um and in the q a he actually mentions um for instance, uh, Peterson's first interaction with Noonan was shooting that final sequence. He yeah. never saw Tom Noonan up to that point at all. He never saw him once. Right. Um, and it sounded like in the Q&A that Noonan did that him and Michael Mann were... Uh, <laughs> Noonan would say something almost like jokingly and Michael Mann would be like, done, okay, you got it. Cause he was like, what can I help you do to get in this role? And Noonan said, well, I would like to uh, separate myself from the cast. I'd like my interactions with these people to be for the first time. That way they're like, their reactions could be more genuine. And right. he's like, I love it. I love it. So he took like the Noonan idea, but then went crazy with it. Like Noonan, Noonan said he had two bodyguards, one in front and one behind that would follow him around on set everywhere to make sure <laughs> that nobody in front or behind would ever see him coming. Yeah. And if they did, you would have to fucking clear the room because Noonan was coming and no one could see him. Oh, wow. Um, Michael Mann took Noonan's idea, which yeah. was good, and made it a, a crazy 
thing, which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I read I read the same thing. Love, I love that idea. Yeah. So those were the main ones I had. That that was that was it for me. Do you want to play a quick game? Sure. We're gonna play. Who would you prefer in the role? No explanation. Just we'll both have our opinions. Mm-hmm. Red Dragon comparing to Manhunter. William Peterson or Ed Norton? As Again, as Graham. Right. Again, I know I had my weird kind of like reservations about Peterson, but I came around to him again a little more with this one. And I I I don't I'd have to say I'm gonna stick with Peterson on this one. I'm saying Ed Norton because Ed Norton's my one of my favorite uh, modern actors. I do love I do love Ed Norton, but his I know I said no discussion, but he looks kind of bored in his portrayal of Red Dragon. Um, in Red Dragon, I should say, but I'm still going to go Norton. Okay. Um, Brian Cox or Anthony Hopkins? Do we even have to discuss that? No, definitely Anthony Hopkins. Sorry, Brian. Noonan. Or Ralph Fiennes as Dollarhide. Noonan, absolutely. 100% on this one, too. Noonan, 100%, and I fucking love Ralph Fiennes, and I think he actually does an excellent job. Right. Um, Farina or Harvey Keitel, I don't even want to choose. Oh, fuck. Yeah, that's fucked <laughs> as, up, man. As Crawford. Ooh. Shit. That one is the toughest one here. Ah. I'm going to say Kaitel, and it pains me, but Farina is on 11, and Kaitel d- manages to be on a 9. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's my only t- explanation, but it, it's that that's a coin toss. I it doesn't, you know, whatever. Yeah, I, I can't I can't set, settle on on that one. If I could blow your mind further, what about Kaitel circa 1986 in that role as opposed to in the 2000s, Kaitel. That would have been sick. That would have been tight. Well, and and you said you still haven't seen Bad Lieutenant. Yes, yeah. We so, talked about that briefly. So, yeah. yeah. And that's uh, relatively close to that time where... Boy, that would have... I, I'm, I'm going to see it this weekend. So, well, uh, it's it's on the docket. Who knows if I get oh, to it. Oh, man, dude. <laughs> you are in for a treat, let me tell you. I know about uh, the the nudity is like all I know about the movie. Like I know that yeah, I don't know, he's swinging his dick around or whatever. But that <laughs> that that movie is gonna fuck your mind. I'm just gonna. Sit, I'm gonna I want to. You, have you seen King of New York? We can edit all this uh, 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 Abel Ferreira discussion out. But yeah, no, I've seen King of New York, and man, it's, it's so good. It's so good. It's, it's so good. I'm actually surprised. Yeah, like. You know, I'm I'm glad that that is you know that turned you around with the you know your opinion it was about Abel Ferreira and the addiction. I've never I've never seen anything else. I know about Bad Lieutenant. Yeah. Um. I, I, and what was the other one? Uh, the the Miss, slasher one. Well, no, I I said t- two other ones that you should definitely watch: Miss Forty Five and Driller Killer. Driller Killer is the one. Yeah. What I would say is after you are done watching Bad Lieutenant, when you can. Watch Miss Forty Five. Oh, above uh, Driller Killer. Yeah, I like Driller Killer, but it's kind of almost like a novelty movie, and, mm. it, and it's like I feel like unless you're like already a Ferrera head, 
you know, and I'm not, I'm, I'm which you're still not. the jury's out on Ferreira for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but for sure, bad Lieutenant. And then miss 45. If, if, you know, if you're like, all right, I'm on board with this guy. Yes. It, if, if bad Lieutenant, um, sways me, I will watch more. Yeah, for sure. Joan Allen or Emily Watson in the, in the Reba McLean, uh, blind woman, uh, this one's, uh, character this one's easy for me emily watson yes i think she does a better job and you know maybe a man yelling at her what the fuck you think anyone's gonna believe that shit maybe he was right i don't know <laughs> yeah right <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that was fun i wanted to play that fun little game stephen lang or philip seymour hoffman as freddie Lowndes. definitely philip seymour hoffman for that one as well that is almost as obvious as Hopkins. Um, yes. Yeah. Hoffman is just excellent. Yeah. He's like the perfect Freddie Lowndes. Because he, he's so good at playing those like moist, greasy kind of. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Sweaty fuck bag. He's like. <laughs> he really. He plays the sweaty foot fuck bag. Yeah. He was. He was excellent. Absolutely excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, go ahead. So now we need to do what we've done before and we'll keep doing is we need to assess whether this movie is in fact a midnight movie. Give it a rating. Boy, I, I don't know if you landed on the same, but in terms of a, our midnight movie ranking, which we come up with a, a time on the clock and the closer to midnight it is, the closer we feel to it being a a midnight movie yeah i gave this like a 10 15 p.m um there's not a lot in it that you would keep it from being aired on television in the middle of the day um it's for what what it's worth maybe not the middle of the day but uh early evening yeah (laughs) i could see it being on tv now it's not and that's why we're talking about it because it doesn't get a lot of uh love or replay value but right it's a 10 15 p.m right around there yeah yeah i agree with you on that what i would also say uh, to a certain extent as far as what our criteria is for this show it kind of I don't know. It, it kind of transcends it a little bit, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it's also not right. Right, right, right. That was the other thing I was going to say. It's not as it's doesn't have those uh, those flaws that we find so endearing. It, it's just a banger of a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as rating systems go, I wouldn't say uh, out of five flaming wheelchairs. <laughs> <laughs> excellent what what would you give this (laughs) this this is uh and this is only because i give i don't give my fives away unless it's uh an all-time favorite movie of mine so this speaks to how much i love this movie i gave it a four and a half four and four and a half out of five flaming wheelchairs four and a half flaming wheelchairs the half (laughs) is like he's in uh you know just in a seated chair but on fire (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right yeah, four, four and a half flaming wheelchair guys out of five yeah i think i'm a, I'm gonna go with you on that one as well I, f- I feel like we're in agreement on that wonderful well here we are we've we've made it through another midnight flicks what are we gonna watch the next time there patrick this is your turn your turn to s- surprise me what's on the docket? i am choosing 
I hope you're as thrilled as I am. Uh, 1991's Cape Fear. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a good or a bad fuck you? I can't even tell. That's a good fuck you. Oh, good. Yeah. Like, yeah, um, because like, man, this is like going to be a one, two fucking banger. Yeah. We're going from man to Scorsese. I think we're, uh, uh, you were, yeah. In terms yeah. of midnight movies, but Cape fear is, uh, viciously violent. And, uh, I feel meets the midnight flicks criteria more so than Manhunter Cause it's not, it is not stylized. It is fucking brutal. It's brutal. Yeah, you're fucking me up with this one, man. I am. Yeah, I'm stoked on that. Thank you for bringing that to the table. I'm stoked to talk about it because it's one of my favorite De Niro performances ever. It's totally it's up there. And uh, and a very strange Scorsese movie. I know it's a remake of a 1962 movie. Right. But um, so so that takes it out of being a straight up Scorsese movie, but still in, in his filmography, it stands out as, um, as different than the most stuff he did. So I'm, I'm excited. I would agree. Totally. Okay. That's awesome. I'm really looking forward to that. So, uh, we'll get into that next week. This has been another deep dive into midnight movie madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for providing our intro music. Our outro music for this week is provided by the Indianapolis band Obscene. If you're a band looking to submit a song or a listener looking to submit a question, feel free to shoot us an email at midnightflixpod, that's F-L-I-X-pod at gmail.com, or hit us up on Instagram at midnightflixpod. For uh, co-host Patrick Mitchell, I am your host, Adam Walker. And we'll see you next time, motherfuckers. Later, fuckface. <laughs>